Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, BTOG uh, Stage 3 Non-Small Cell uh, Masterclass. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to this uh, meeting and also to my three esteemed experts, uh, Professor Corinne Faberfin, Professor Samreen Ahmed, and Dr. Alistair Greystoke. And we're going to be discussing uh, Stage 3 uh, lung cancer. Uh, so uh, moving on to our next slide, which is going to magically move, I hope. There we go. Um, we need to thank our platinum sponsor, which is Amgen. As you know, the, these webinars are with are grateful support of our industry partners. So thank you to Amgen for supporting this. If you'd like any information about BTOG, please contact Dawn or Gina. You've got the email address there and you've got the uh, web page there. If you're not a BTOG member, then shame on you. Why not? You should be joining up. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and you can find details on the uh, website there. If we could move on to the next one. So just a little bit of housekeeping for those of you who may or may not have uh, done these uh, webinars before with, with BTOG. We are trialing polling uh, questions and you can also send in questions as well uh, through your portal. So the trick is if you've got uh, the um, your portal open on full screen, you won't be able to see the questions and answer section. So don't make it full screen, reduce it. And the as if by magic, the Q&A bit will open up. Um, we will uh, send you an email, an email um, and you can give feedback for that. And if you do that, you then get your certificate of attendance. And this is registered by the RCP as a CPD event, which is all very exciting. So uh, moving on to the agenda. So here is the exciting agenda we have in front of us for the next hour. Um, we're going to kick off with Corinne talking about chemoradiotherapy and consolidation immunotherapy. Samreen's then going to take the baton and talk about perioperative immunotherapy. And then Ali is on the, the home straight for novel agents. And you'll be looking there thinking, but hang on. We're talking about stage three non-small cell lung cancer, and you haven't mentioned the word surgery. Now that is not to diminish the extremely important part of surgery has in stage three lung cancer. But what we found with these webinars is an hour's about right, much more than that. And we all struggle a bit and we want to go off and get our supper ready and so on. So we're trying to keep within an hour. And we felt if you try to do everything, we would probably rush it a bit. So we're gonna focus on these areas and you're gonna keep your eyes peeled for future events when we will of course bring in the surgical aspect for that. And I'm very much hoping we have some of our surgical colleagues online who will be asking questions through the Q and A. So again, let's focus on those questions and answers. So I'm going to stop prattling on. I'm going to pass over to Corinne. So those of you who don't know, Corinne is a, uh, is a professor of thoracic uh, radiation oncology at the University of Manchester and also a consultant clinical oncologist at the Christie. Uh, Corinne, over to you. Thank you very much, Tom, and good evening, everyone. So I'm delighted to talk on chemoradiotherapy and consolidation immunotherapy. So these are my conflicts of interests. So, as you will know, the majority of our patients with stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer are not suitable for surgery, either because they have multiple comorbidities or because they are not resectable. And the standard of care is chemoradiotherapy, aiming to achieve both local control, but at the same time reducing as much as possible the side effects. With this treatment, we have, however, two problems. One is the risk of local relapse. Approximately a third of the patients will, will relapse locally uh, at two years and also metastatic relapse. 
So this slide summarizes the current standard of care in this disease. So for fit patients, it is concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And we have learned over the last few years that there is no role for dose escalation using, using conventional fractionation. The standard dose fractionation of 60 grain, 30 fractions, was established by the pivotal RTOG0617 trial. This study and others have also, has also highlighted the role of intensity modulated radiotherapy, which allows the radical treatment of patients who were deemed previously uh, only suitable for palliative treatment. With regards to systemic treatment, um, we deliver cisplatinum based chemotherapy with uh, radiotherapy. We have learned from a number of randomized controlled trials and meta-analysis that there is no role for either induction or consolidation chemotherapy. And to date, in stage three disease, there is no defined role for targeted agents, including in patients who have um, targeted mutations in the context of chemoradiotherapy. So in summary, uh, to date, unfortunately, um, very, this is very different to what's happening in the stage four setting. We have no individualization of radiotherapy or systemic therapy. So the standard of care treatment is concurrent chemoradiotherapy, but is that delivered in the routine setting? And many of you would, have, would be aware of this national audit that was published last year. And what we've learned from this important audit is that in both stage 3A and 3B, the majority of patients in the UK receive either palliative treatment or best supportive care. And if we look at patients who are treated with radical radiotherapy, only um, two-thirds receive chemotherapy in addition to radiotherapy. And in the, within the patient's group treated with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, only a third receive concurrent chemoradiotherapy. So for me, these are pretty shocking figures because uh, in, in summary, less than 5% of patients with stage 3 disease in the UK are treated with the best standard of care of concurrent chemoradiotherapy. Now, we had some good news in 2017 and 2018 with this IO tsunami, so the publication of the uh, Pacific trial. And just a reminder, many of you will be very familiar with this design, but just a reminder that the patients included in Pacific were patients with unresectable stage 3 disease who had not progressed after at least two cycles of chemotherapy uh, given concurrently with radiotherapy. There were PS01 patients who had um, uh, side effects that had uh, resolved. This was an all-commerce population, so uh, tissue was not mandated. And the patients were randomized two to one between Duvalumab and placebo for one year. There were two uh, co-primary endpoints, PFS and uh, overall survival. This slide is just to highlight that the Pacific population is quite a selected population. So um, less than um, half of the patients were aged above 65 years and in the UK, the median age of lung cancer is 71, and almost half the patients were PS0. I don't know how many PS0 you do see in your clinics, but certainly in Manchester, I don't see very many of these. Now, what was quite reassuring with Pacific was the, um, the, 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 the safety and the toxicity profile. So uh, no major difference between the two uh, arms, and what reassured us, particularly the a clinical oncologist was the risk of grade 3-4 pneumonitis, which was less than 
5% in both arms. I had the pleasure of uh, presenting at ESMO this year the updated uh, uh, analysis of survival and PFS at four years. And for the first time, the median survival was reached and it's an unprecedented 47.5 months in the Duvalumab arm. Um, the, there was a reduction in the risk of death of 29%, and the four-year survival is almost 50% in the Duvalumab group compared to 36% in the placebo group. There was also a um, sustained benefit with regards to PFS with a reduction in the risk of progression of death or death of 45%. And then similarly to what had been presented uh, previously, there was consistent benefit in favor of duvalumab in more subgroups at the exception of patients with EGFR mutations, but this was a very small subgroup of uh, only 43 patients. And also, as you will know, patients with PDL1 status of less uh, than 1%. Uh, so in the UK and in Europe, uh, Duvalumab was, was approved only in PDL1, uh, more than 1%. If you're interested to read more about the debate around whether patients with PDL1 uh, of less than 1% should be treated with Duvalumab, I would point you to this uh, paper, which I do not have time to discuss today. Now, some, some comments on Pacific. So, as I said previously, is the Pacific population really representative? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in the next few slides. Um, unfortunately, in Pacific, there was no data collected on disease volume, dose to organs at risks, and radiotherapy techniques. So, therefore, it is difficult to know whether we can extrapolate the data from Pacific to an all-commerce population. And for example, as you can see on the right-hand side, patients with large volume disease. We clearly do not have an ideal biomarker as yet. Certainly, uh, PDL1 has limitations. And there are quite a number of uncertainties still based on the data that was presented. So we have quite a number of outstanding questions, uh, for example, on the safety of treating patients with large volume disease, the optimal radiotherapy dose and fractionation, as most patients in Pacific receive a conventional dose of around 60 grain, 30 fractions. We have questions about the tolerance of duvalumab in the elderly, but also in patients treated sequentially. And to address that, we have a Pacific 6 trial that is currently recruiting in the UK very well and will be completing recruitment um, internationally in uh, January. There are questions around the timing of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and duvalumab and whether duvalumab can also be delivered concurrently with uh, radiotherapy and that has been addressed in the Pacific 2 study that is completed and will be reporting, I, I think, in 2021 or early 2022. And then finally, there are questions around the optimal duration of duvalumab uh, treatment, which was 12 months in Pacific, but you know, should it be less, should it be more, we don't really know. Now, beyond Pacific, of course, there are also a number of outstanding questions, uh, again, around the optimal radiotherapy dose, schedule and volume of disease, the questions around the type of immunotherapy uh, that should be used in combination with radiotherapy, so CTLA-4 and other drugs, 
is it safe to deliver immunotherapy concurrently with chemo radiotherapy? And there are many international trials ongoing addressing this question. And then finally, the holy grail, who are the patients most likely to benefit from consolidation immunotherapy post-chemo radiotherapy? And if you're interested in that question, there's some excellent papers from a Max Dean lab in Stanford on ctDNA, and they do suggest that uh, the use of ctDNA could be used to identify these patients who would benefit. So these are my conclusions for the first part of this talk on uh, chemo radiotherapy and immunotherapy. So concurrent chemo rads followed by gefalumab is the standard of care in good performance status patients who have responded to treatment and recovered from side effects. But that um, is a treatment that is not available if PDL1 is less than 1%, certainly not in the UK, but also not uh, should not be considered as yet pending further data if a definitive treatment is not concurrent treatment, for example, in the sequential setting. There are trials ongoing with other immunotherapy agents, and some of them will be reporting within the next few years. We have a quite a large number of unanswered questions, particularly regarding the optimal chemo-radiotherapy consolidation and selection of patients. And then importantly, we need to include patients in clinical trials and also increase the proportion of patients treated with concurrent chemo-radiotherapy in the UK. Now, when we were preparing this webinar, Sanjay asked me to cover results of a lung art trial, which was presented at ESMO this year. So lung art is a study that was funded in the UK by Cancer Research UK, and many thanks to the centres that uh, included patients in this important study. So this is a study in completely resected non-small cell lung cancer with N2 disease, uh, who were then randomized between uh, uh, radiotherapy postoperatively and uh, no radiotherapy. So you can see the characteristics of a patient. So majority adenocarcinoma, majority had chemotherapy either pre-op uh, or post-op. Um, and more than 90% of the patients had a pretreatment PET scan. Uh, just over 50% of the patients had more than uh, two stations uh, involved within the mediastinum. Primary endpoint was uh, disease-free survival. And as you can see from a graph on the left-hand side, no significant difference between the two groups. But I would like to point out that the three-year disease-free survival was actually um, uh, slightly uh, higher in the port arm not significant, but 47% versus 43%. The mediastinal relapse rate was reduced by port. And as you can see from the table on the left-hand side, there's a high risk of mediastinal relapse, almost 50%, if patients do not receive post-op therapy. And in terms of, you can see from the graph on the bottom, significant difference in survival. Now, what's really important is to consider the cause of death, and particularly there was more um, uh, risk of dying due to progression of recurrence in the control arm. But I'd like to point out that there was more cardiopulmonary toxicity in the port arm, and that's really important. We now have more and more data in the field of lung cancer uh, 
showing that radiotherapy, well, dose to the heart matters and actually can be associated with further deaths. And that's what the, 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 this study has also uh, demonstrated. Um, as you can see on the uh, table on the right-hand side, 10% um, of patients or 11% of patients had at least one late cardiac or pulmonary toxicity compared to 5% in the control arm. So the main conclusion of this study is that conformal port cannot be recommended as a standard of care in completely resected stage 3A and 2 non-small cell lung cancer patients. However, we have to consider that the medicinal relapse is high without port, around 50%, and there's a need for post-op surveillance. There is no role for port after complete resection in the routine setting, but perhaps um, at the exception of patients with extracapsular extension, and these patients were actually excluded from, from uh, lung out. There's there was uh, an excellent survival result reported in the control arm uh, in this study. Um, and therefore, this eternal debate between chemo radiotherapy versus surgery, in my, in my view, is still very much alive and will continue for years to come. And then finally, the role of IO in the surgical setting is an important question. So just to finish on the note of the eternal debate of surgery versus uh, a non-surgical approach, uh, in the stage three setting, the pioneer study led by Matt Evison and Janelle York in Manchester has just uh, started recruitment and we recruited the first patient this week in Manchester. This study, um, which is a feasibility study, compares a surgical to a non-surgical approach. And we're looking at the acceptability of conducting a phase three randomized controlled trials with quality of life as a primary endpoint. So very important study. Now, I'm now getting to my polling questions. So the first one uh, that I would like to ask is, is there a role for surgery in stage three non-small cell lung cancer in the immunotherapy era? So that's a very simple yes or no question. So, I think you all have to vote on Slido at this stage. And then there's a second question about the role of port and you can tick all of that apply. Is there a role of port in patients with completely resected N2 disease, in patients with extra capsular extension, in patients with R1 resection, so incomplete microscopic resection, or none of the above? I think if you if you all vote, I and mean, then Tom will pick up on your on your answers, and then that's my final message. Thank you very much for listening, Corinne. Thank you very much. Um, who better to uh, go through the important role of uh, radiotherapy than, than Corinne? So, uh, doing our interactive polls is a bit of a new thing for us, and we are aware there's quite a lag between. Corinne showing the slide on her side, Nick, coming through to you guys. It takes about 30 seconds. So I'm hoping that you've had a chance to go through them. We are a little short of time, and I'm now going to see if I can go through the results. So hopefully you can see the results to Corinne's first question. Uh, is there a role for surgery in the stage, in the, uh, stage three disease? So 90% say yes. Um, and 10% say no. So we are a, a group who appear to, by a large uh, appreciate that. Um, 
and uh, for the is there a role of post-operative radiotherapy? Um, uh, so hopefully that might be popping up. I'm hoping you can see that on your on your Slido. Um, so there we go. P patients with uh, R1 resections are the ones and there is with extracapsular extension. And in fact, that's really handy, guys. You are reading my mind because one of the questions that come through, Corinne, if I may, just for one or two minutes, is, is there anyone who can, who would be suitable for radiotherapy post-operatively? And I guess that extracapsular R1 group of patients, what would your personal or your MDT's opinion be on those kind of patients? Does, does lung art tell us not to do it or has it just not quite answered that question? Yeah, no, it doesn't. So uh, as I said, lung art did exclude patients with extracapsular extension and they, um, they are patients, as we know, who are at higher risk of local regional relapse. So I think, you know, we should definitely discuss um, potentially to give port. However, I think, you know, one of the really important message for me is this issue of cardiopulmonary toxicity. Um, and, you know, perhaps we should personalize a bit more our decisions. So, for example, if we have someone who uh, has extra capital extension, uh, we're considering radiotherapy and the dose to the heart is particularly high, someone with cardiac comorbidities, then perhaps we should advise them that they are um, high risks with regards to long-term cardiac problems. Thank you. Um, one other question, just the last one I think we'll do, because we are a bit, a bit short of time, which is what we always say in these things. Um, let's say you've got someone in, the, uh, in, in your MDT, you are looking at your outcomes over the previous years, like, like indeed we do, and we find out the MDT is under-delivering on our concomitant chemoradiotherapy. We're not doing it enough, even for the good performance status patients. It's clearly a UK thing. Individually, what can we do? What should we do in our MDT? How do we make this better, practically speaking, on the ground? What, what can our colleagues on the end of the line do to make it better? Well, that is a, a really important and very complex question, Tom. So in my mind, there are various issues, uh, but the two main issues is one, availability of technology. And certainly, um, since we've had IMRT and VMAT available in our centre now, you know, for quite a long time, we have been able to treat many more patients radically, but also with concurrent chemo rads. That's one aspect. Another very important aspect is the, the training. Um, you know, they are typically centers uh, where people have been trained in a very, very conservative way. And, you know, many of the registrars in the UK do not tend to move from one centre to another um, and then continue working in that conservative way. So I think actually BTOC could have a very, very important role in that, um, in the, you know, raising awareness and perhaps um, developing workshops that would be very much focused on how you select patients for concurrent chemo rads. Thank you very much. And it's certainly something in, in our MDT that, that uh, one of MDTs were where we need to try to build that. And I'd also encourage people to complete their National Lung Cancer Audit returns, because if you can demonstrate how your MDT is performing, data yes. is quite a good way to try to change behaviour. Um, Corinne, thank you very much. That was magnificent. Um, we're going to move um, uh, down, the, uh, down the road to, to Leicester with um, uh, Samarine Ahmed, who is a uh, uh, consultant medical oncologist and Sammy's going to talk to us uh, about perioptive immune checkpoint inhibitors. A lot of data has come out over the past 
year, year and a half about this. And Samreen, thank you very much for taking us through it. Thanks, Tom, for inviting me. Um, so we'll move straight on. Um, so actually, there's more questions than answers, I would say. Um, outcomes of uh, systemic therapy administered in this role given neoadjuvantly, is it the same as giving adjuvantly? And I'll show you a little bit of data around that. Is immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade safe preoperatively? Uh, pre and I'll show you a little bit data around that and we can have a discussion about that. Um, the third question I pose is that um, neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitor blockade um, give, given long, is it, is it providing us with longer term immunogenicity, i.e. Um, resistance against relapse? And that's uh, really the golden nugget that we're all after. Um, and then does pathological complete response have prognostic value in non-small cell lung cancer um, as it does perhaps in breast cancer? And uh, we'll maybe just uh, amble over that over the evidence regarding that okay so why is um surgery not enough we've heard this from corinne already um but this is really what focuses um focuses your mind uh on the survival of uh, non-small cell lung cancer in the stages when you've got larger tumors which are node positive you'll uh five-year survival rates are falling well below uh, falling well below uh, uh, what you would expect and we're going down to 60 percent uh, with larger tumors and then by the time we've got no positivity we're down in the 30s so there's a great need for uh, improvement in that in this arena so um Adjuvant chemotherapy, we've been giving it for a long time and here's the evidence around it. Um, we know there's a number of studies looking at uh, stage uh, 1B upwards with larger tumors and node positive cancers, mainly looking at platinum doublets and majority of them use venorobin, significant number use the top side and there is also carbotaxel in there. Uh, varying degrees of um, uh, benefit was shown in these studies, but really when we get to the meta-analysis, that's really ebbed us all towards giving adjuvant chemotherapy in definitely in node-positive tumours, but also in larger tumours, any tumour that was over four centimetres. So the case for adjuvant chemotherapy is really very well established. Um, what about preoperative chemotherapy? This was a, system, a systematic review and a meta-analysis of individual data. So uh, published in Lancet in 2014, so fairly long time ago, which really showed that um, adjuvant chemotherapy was equivalent to new adjuvant in terms of five-year um, survival rates. So this looked at 15 uh, randomized control studies of quite a lot of patients, over 2,000 patients. Uh, and pro and really showed that actually um, you were getting 5% improvement in overall survival at five years. And this is uh, almost identical to your adjuvant um, 
data that we've seen and the benefit that you can receive with adjuvant chemotherapy. Oh, sorry. Now on to, oh. so, so uh, addressing the first um, question then, we've shown that neoadjuvant treatment is same as adjuvant. And then we go on to the next question then, is it really safe to give uh, preoperative uh, chemoimmunotherapy? And these are all phase two studies which were conducted uh, in this arena. So um, larger tumors and also node positive tumors were given preoperative chemoimmunotherapy. Um, some of them were given uh, CTLA-4 antibody together with uh, immune checkpoint blockade combination. And some of the, most of the endpoints were looking at safety and feasibility. Uh, just draw your attention to MPR and that's major pathological response. And we'll discuss this a little bit uh, later, but this means that uh, we don't see that many people getting complete responses. So having an endpoint where you're not gonna get that many people achieving complete response is uh, probably uh, a little bit foolish. So major pathological responses um, was thought to be another endpoint that we could use. And this is when you've got less than 10% of viable tumor left at surgery. So these phase two studies really very much showed um, that it was feasible, deliverable, and safe, most importantly. So we've answered our next question. Yes, immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade is safe preoperatively. What about can neoadjuvant key, um, checkpoint inhibitor blockade give longer term immunogenicity? Now, the question's uh, fairly out there still. So this is a beautiful study um, published a couple of years ago, looking at giving neoadjuvant um, nivolumab to resectable lung cancer patients. And not to go too detailed in all this science, because this is really a little bit above my um, uh, intelligence, but really the, it was a beautiful study in that they took biopsies pre-nivolumab treatment and post-nivolumab treatment and analyzed uh, whether you were getting macrophages um, migrating into the tumor and perhaps you were then producing an immune response. And th this, um, uh, this was looking at what's called adaptive immune response. So are you able to induce an immune response in a tumor which may not have uh, immune, immune responsiveness and therefore wouldn't be suitable for immunotherapy or um, chemotherapy? And then uh, the same paper looked at uh, whether there was an expansion of the T cells, which really produced the memory immune response in tumors. And uh, they really did show that there was an expansion of these T cells, um, T cell clones in these tumors when they were treated with preoperative nivolumab. So really nice study. So just to say, um, can, uh, giving immunotherapy preoperatively give us really long-term immunogenicity. And that's uh, still possibly a question that's out there, but certainly the science would lead us to believe that you can produce immune responsive tumors by giving treatment preoperatively. So the next question is, does pathological complete response have any prognostic value in non-small cell lung cancer? Now in triple negative breast cancer, we've proven that this is a surrogate marker really of survival, and can we do that in non-small cell lung cancer? So 
possibly. So I'll just show you uh, a couple of papers here. So um, this uh, uh, consensus statement really was uh, published uh, a little while ago in back in 2014. And this was looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So immunotherapy wasn't really uh, in the mix here, but this was just looking at perioperative chemotherapy and the use of using this, what's called major pathological response. Now, just to remind you, major pathological response is when you've got less than 10% viable tumors detectable in your reception and your lymph nodes. And this um, uh, paper tested whether this uh, strongly correlated to um, survival. And their consensus was, yes, we can use uh, major pathological response rates as um, a surrogate marker um, to be able to predict uh, prognosis uh, of patients who were treated with um, uh, chemotherapy, then uh, in, um, surgery after that. So now let's get to the crux of it. We've got three Phase three main phase three studies, which are ongoing, and some of us are recruiting to these studies. They are, these are studies of neoadjuvant immunotherapy, and I'll just take a little while just to go through these in a little bit more detail. Um, we'll go through checkpoint 816 in a minute, but Impower um, 030 is a very standard chemo, platinum doublet chemotherapy um, together with a tezolizumab. Um, and again, it's looking in the same population, large tumors, no positive tumors, or all uh, given preoperative regime of platinum doublet and tezolizumab. There's a little um, uh, the, the adjuvant bit. So the, the, those patients with randomized to tezolizumab will also receive adjuvant immunotherapy for a year after surgery. And then we have Keynote 671, which is looking in the same space identical study looking at pembrolizumab with chemotherapy. And again, this has an adjuvant pembrolizumab arm as well, looking at the same larger tumors node positive. So the most um, advanced of these uh, studies is Checkmate 816. And I'll just show you the design of this. Um, so again, this is a phase three randomized study looking at that same space, so larger tumors with um, or with nodal involvement, and they um, can't have any oncogenic drivers, so all wild type come in. Uh, performance status again, zero to one, and there's uh, three arms, it's slightly uh, more complicated than the other two studies, and this is looking at combination of your, your nevo ipi, which we've all seen um, come into this arena, um, either your, then uh, one of the randomization arms is your platinum doublet, uh, your standard cisplatin doublet, or there is your platinum doublet with nivolumab. And then um, go to your surgery. Uh, and then at the, after that, um, you can use your standard of care in trying to adjust who you would give um, adjuvant uh, treatment to or radiotherapy. So the primary endpoints are pathological complete response, and we've just touched upon that. Looking at pathological those, that was the, the premise of this study. Um, 
event-free survival, and then secondary endpoints are overall survival and major pathological. move on here we are so this uh, uh, hasn't reported formally yet but there was a press release uh, from BMS saying that primary endpoints of pathological complete response have been achieved so we all um, look forward to that with bated breath we that Slides not moving. Here we are. Okay, so this is a little resume of um, adjuvant studies uh, looking at immune checkpoint inhibitor blockade in this uh, in non-small cell lung cancer. So basically, those patients who would consider um, adjuvant treatment in. And so again, it's in the same larger tumors, no positives, uh, good performance status patients. Um, and very almost identical design, really, um, in all of them. And they're all, um, uh, Pearls has completed accruing now, uh, open to follow up, following up patients. But the, this, the, this, these studies will take a, a long time to report. So um, Canopy A, we've just initiated at our site. Um, so we'll, it'll be nice to share experiences, see Canicumumab. Uh, which I haven't used uh, in the past before. So yeah, uh, exciting arena of adjuvant studies. So last slide, um, it's not really just in uh, America and in, uh, in France and Germany that you see complete pathological responses. I just thought I'd put this patient up uh, for you uh, to see because it's really exciting. This is one of my few complete pathological responses. So this lady who's got this, really huge tumor in that left upper lobe was, was deemed really far too large to um, uh, give concurrent chemo radiotherapy. She also had N2 lymph nodes as well and that field was really far too large and I work uh, with uh, a really quite amazing clinical oncologists who te technically their radiotherapy is uh, really excellent and they're very pro concurrent chemo radiotherapy but even they thought this was going to be a little bit much for them. So um, she, this lady went on to have chemotherapy immunotherapy combination as a inoperable advanced um, uh, cancer that couldn't have concurrent. And so this was about halfway through, you can see she had a really nice response. And then uh, a little bit later, uh, she had complete functional response on her PET scan. And at that point, uh, I took her back to the MDT and we uh, got advice from our uh, surgical team and to see whether this would be operable uh, with a little bit of workup, MRIs and stuff to make sure that there wasn't um, tumor penetration into the spinal canal, et cetera. Uh, she successfully had surgery and very pleased to say she's very, very well. She had a complete pathological response, came through surgery really well. So I'm hoping this is um, somebody we've hopefully given at least long-term control to, if not cure. So um, this is my last slide. So thank you very much. Thank you, Samreen. Uh, very clear, very concise. That's what we like. Um, so a couple of questions coming through. And, and one of them, um, in fact, both revolve around the idea of major pathological response and pathological complete response. And one question it relates to that paper in 2014, which is saying, 
if we think NPR made a pathological response in chemo is relevant, can we also assume that's the case with immunotherapy? Or do we, do we think we should be looking for a different marker? And a similar theme, pathological complete response is great. Uh, that, that sounds really good. Is that going to be enough to convince you? Um, let's say in, in six months' time, um, on the basis of that of that press release, we saw uh, we get approval for immunotherapy combinations new adjuvantly based on PCR, uh, pathological complete response. Is that enough for your patients or, or do you want some survival data? Well, of course we want survival data and that's going to be the holy grail. But, you know, these studies are going to take a long time to report out. So we don't want patients missing out uh, on really valuable treatment in the main in the meantime. So that's the whole point of having these surrogate markers, giving us an idea of uh, what we should be doing. Um, you know, we can't, in this rapidly evolving era, we can't sit on our hands and wait for survival data all the time. So, I mean, that would be ideal. That's what we all want to see. And we don't want to give these really expensive treatments unless we know that they're going to impact on overall survival. However, that, that that may take a long time if these patients are doing well. So we've got to look at surrogate markers. And you know the evidence thus far is that um, immunotherapy, chemotherapy combinations producing much better responses, much more durable responses than just chemotherapy alone. So my, my hope is that we're gonna see actually more complete pathological responses. And then we can probably put the made MPR business in the bin and actually look for complete pathological response, which we weren't really seeing um, a great proportion off with chemotherapy alone. Thank you very much. I like the idea of NPR being in the bin. That's a great one. Uh, I've got a message from someone called Sanjay Popper. I'm, I'm not quite sure who he is. Uh, I've heard of him somewhere. Um, his question is, um, is disease-free survival a meaningful endpoint in the IO adjuvant trials? We've seen a little bit of this argument in the, the Adora data. What do you think about uh, DFS in the adjuvant stuff? Typical Sanjay to ask me a really difficult question. What can you do? I mean, the boss. What can I... Um, I'm not sure, really. Looking at adjuvant studies, I want to see, as, I, as we discussed, we want to see overall survival. If we can get in this perioperative arena, and I know lung cancer has been really slow on the uptake in this. I mean, we've been doing this for years in breast cancer, looking at pathological complete responses as a surrogate marker. So I'm, I'm not with the disease-free survival side. I'm, I'm with the get the surrogate marker and see what responses you're getting with your treatment and whether that will actually um, translate into survival. So probably not. Thank you very much. I mean, we will leave you and your very erudite library behind you. I think it's a fake backdrop personally, but, but who knows? Uh, and we're going to move on. <laughs> we're going to move on to our third and final talk, uh, which is uh, Ali Greatstoke. And Ali is a senior lecturer uh, and consultant medical oncologist uh, in, in sunny Newcastle. And Ali's going to go through novel drugs and maybe touch, I hope, at the end on a very exciting uh, new project, which he and a number of colleagues are involved with and which we should be very proud of in the UK. Uh, Ali, uh, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Tom, and thank you very much to BTOG for giving me the opportunities in this area. So I'm going to be talking about uh, novel drugs and potentially personalised therapy, and particularly in terms of disclosures, as Tom suggested, I will be talking about the Concord study, of which I'm one of the chief investigators, and that does read, uh, receive financial support and drug supply from AstraZeneca. 
So I'm, I'm going to touch on two different areas here. Uh, the first is looking at the role of targeted agents in the stage three setting, which Corinne just touched on in her talk. And then I am going to talk about the ability to give some of the new agents in combination with radiotherapy. So I think we're all aware of the new range of targets that are coming forward in terms of the oncogene addicted lung cancer setting in the stage four setting. So we've moved beyond just treating EGFR mutants with TKIs, and we now have access also to ALK, ROS1, BRAF um, within the NHS in the, in, in the first line setting and uh, NTRAC inhibitors in the end line setting. And we're likely to also see inhibitors coming through for RET, Mexon, MET, Exxon 14, SKIP, uh, lesions in next year and potentially um, HER2 and EGFR exon 20 mutations coming forward after that. So increasingly being able to personalize in the stage four setting, but what about in stage three setting? And it's already been touched on that, you know, there was a lot of buzz this year at ASCO and ESMO with a simultaneous publication at ESMO in the New England Journal of the Adura study. And within the time I've got, I'm not going to be able to talk about all the intricacies. And I, I would uh, refer you to the recent podcast I included, Professor Popat, um, as to how we should interpret the study. But I'm going to touch on it in terms of the stage three setting. So these are patients who have had surgery. They had to be uh, 1B to 3A, and they had to have one of the common sensitizing EGFR mutations. That to be appropriately staged. And importantly, from this study, you were allowed to give adjuvant chemotherapy. And well, what we found in, in the stage two, three setting, 76% uh, of patients did receive adjuvant chemotherapy. So these patients were treated as per our present standard of care. And then they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either osimertid or, or placebo with the osimertid given for up to three years. And has, as has been touched on, the primary endpoint was disease-free setting and uh, not survival, which does give us a potential early, um, early output. But as you'll see, it gives some uncertainty as to when we should use this. So you'll be aware that this was a positive study. The primary endpoint was looking in the stage two, three A setting. And in that setting, the hazard ratio was 0.17. And if you look in the paper, you can actually see the split in the stage three A patients. And the hazard ratio there was 0.12 for disease-free survival with an increase in uh, two-year survival from, uh, sorry, two-year disease-free survival from 32 to 88%. So really positive in terms of that potential outcome. And we've seen some other outcomes presented, including disease-free survival. Uh, so including um, uh, pattern of metastasis and reduction in CNS metastasis as, as a potential pre-specified endpoint. What is very immature at the present is this overall survival, which I think we'd all like to see. So there's only been 29 deaths within the study, which is great. It shows a good prognosis uh, for these patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer. Um, with 20 of the deaths being in the placebo arm and only nine in the osmosinib arm. So it is looking like that might be positive, but it's, it's so immature, it's very difficult to comment on. The other thing I would like to comment on is if you look at the, the disease-free survival in the stage 2-3A, a large number of these patients are relapsing and you know doing worse than, for example, in port. And this is in keeping with previous data showing that EGFR mutant patients do do worse from surgery alone. But, you know, I think it is important to consider overall survival. This is a different study, the adjuvant study that we, uh, was conducted in China a few years ago uh, and presented the progression-free survival at um, ASCO, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, which showed an improvement in progression-free survival. This was a different study design. You either got adjuvant chemotherapy 
or your EGFR inhibitor, which was first-generation gefitinib. And whilst we saw this improvement in, in disease-free survival, this did not translate to an improvement in overall survival. So that's just some a caution to bear in mind when we look at this setting. Uh, so what about EGFR in the unresectable setting, the chemoradiotherapy setting that uh, Karina was talking about earlier? And I'm afraid I should have updated this slide to her most recent analysis, but there were 43 patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer in Pacific. And you will see that in terms of progression-free survival, actually they seem to have very similar hazard ratio to those patients that were EGFR wild type or unknown. And whilst the overall survival was not uh, presented in that analysis, I, I did notice it had been presented in Corinne's latest uh, uh, update at ESMO with a hazard ratio of one, but huge wide confidence intervals as you'd expect. So um, no evidence to suggest that they might not derive extra benefit from Devaliburp, but very small numbers in Pacific in patients treated with chemoradiotherapy. So um, what about osimertinib in this setting? Well, the LORA study is ongoing nearing completion, and that's taking the Pacific population mostly in that it's uh, patients who are receiving chemoradiotherapy but can be sequential, stage three, fit, common EGFR mutations, randomizing two to one osimertinib to, against placebo, and very controversially, for me at least, that's until progression. So some of these patients who are potentially cured may stay on osimertinib until the end of their life. And again, maybe not the best endpoint from our point of view, progression-free survival. It does have some very interesting secondary endpoints, including uh, using CFDNA to determine progression-free survival and patient-reported outcomes, which I think are very key in this setting. And lastly, coming forward, well, what about the neoadjuvant setting? Well, we have the Neodora study, which is looking at giving uh, the potential role of osimertinib upfront before surgery. So these are patients who are potentially resectable and will get randomized to either osimertinib itself or potentially chemotherapy with or without osimertinib, and that randomization will be blinded. But again, we're looking at this slightly unusual uh, endpoint that we don't know what it really means in this setting, particularly using a TKI of major pathological response. But again, some important key secondary endpoints, including failure to perform surgery. So is this feasible and patient reported outcomes? So lots of questions there that we're going to come on to, you know, in terms of how long you should treat for, what's the optimum endpoint in these studies, that how long should you treat patients for? I think those all came up in Corinne's talk as well. So I'm going to move on. So um, there is going to be one polling question here, which is, you know, given the update, the Adora data that we've now seen, some of these studies coming forward, there are also studies coming forward in the ALK fusion space, which I did not have time to talk about. Do you think we should all be molecularly profiling all our lung cancer patients, regardless of their stage? So stage one to stage four. So uh, please do vote now, and I'm gonna carry on and talk about the second bit, and Tom will come back to the results. So the second bit of my talk is gonna be talking about giving drugs, new drugs with radiotherapy. And so what are we trying to achieve by doing this? Well, Corinne talked about the fact that we're trying to kill cancer cells, but that local, um, local that side effects, toxicity is very important. And particularly when we're thinking about the heart and lung in terms of the curative setting and the potential to do long-term harm to our patients. So with a new drug, can we shift the therapeutic index? Can we either enhance the DNA, the DNA damage to the tumor or can we protect normal tissues? And particularly today, I'm gonna to talk about enhancing tumor DNA damage. 
Also, there is the, this so-called abscopal effect of radiotherapy on the immune system. And we're not going to really touch on that because I think that's been covered in the previous talks, particularly by Corinne. So I'm going to talk to you about the Concord study and particularly a DNA damage response. So we know that radiotherapy causes DNA damage, that cancer cells often have abnormal uh, uh, components of the DNA damage response, but that there are a number of agents that are coming out that can potentially target these. And these have been evaluated both as single agents uh, in key populations, for example, the PARP inhibitors in BRCA patients coming forward, the ATR inhibitors in ATM mutant patients, but also in combination with chemotherapy. And in a test tube, you see really quite remarkable synergy with radiotherapy. So can we give these safely to patients or are they also going to exacerbate normal tissue to toxicity? So that's where the Concord study comes in. So this is a platform study where we're going to look at five different DNA damage response inhibitors, the safety of giving them in combination with radical dose radiotherapy like Corinne has previously described. And as Tom mentioned, this has been a huge UK um, uh, effort over the last three to four years. You can see all the partners have been involved. Many of the people listening in would have been involved and fed back on the study design, which we think is very novel. And so this will be taking your patients going forward who are having 60 gray and 30 fractions without chemotherapy because you get, uh, unfortunately, you do get overlapping toxicity between chemotherapy and uh, DDR inhibitors, particularly when you add them in radiotherapy. So it's, we presently don't think it's feasible to give all three drugs together. And then patients will be allocated within a, within a study to uh, an arm. And within the arm, they will get a, a, a randomized in a three to one basis to their, either the radiotherapy alone or radiotherapy plus a new drug. And you can see that the first two drugs coming through are the POP inhibitor, Laprib, and an ATM inhibitor. You're saying, well, why do we need to give radiotherapy alone? Well, the answer is whilst we've got very good clinical trial data on patients receiving concurrent chemo radiotherapy and the toxicity they experience, we don't have great data using radiotherapy alone in the, in the updated area using things like IMRT that Karim was talking about before. So we need a really good feel as to what the toxicity rates are with radiotherapy alone and, and whether the, these new drugs are, are leading to increasing toxicity. And uh, our primary endpoint is safety, but we've got key, a key number of other uh, endpoints, and particularly, again, patient-reported outcomes, which we think are key in this potentially curative setting. And lastly, uh, we're going to have 200 patients involved. This is uh, giving you know, five novel drugs with radiotherapy. This is a key uh, opportunity for us to do some really exciting translational science and help us answer some key questions that we feel. So, you know, can we predict patients who are going to predict uh, who are going to sub develop subsequent toxicity down the line? You know, can we pick up in the first week of treatment patients who may run into problems towards the end of treatment or even one or two years down the line? So we're going to be doing serial biomarkers of lung and heart toxicity. Importantly, given the previous uh, talks, what's the what's the impact of giving these new drugs with radiotherapy on the immune system? We will be looking and adding in uh, checkpoint inhibitors such as the Valumab to the platform as we go along. And lastly, we've got five different drugs. Are there some patients that may benefit from more than one drug or another? So is there something about the tumor's uh, genetic makeup that can help us predict which patient should receive which drug? So that's a whistle stop, um, stop tour of Concord, just to say we have all the approvals in place, MHRA ethics, we're just in the final throes of setup and hoping to put the first patient on in the next month or so. And there will be um, starting off with nine centers throughout the UK 
going up to hopefully 13 centres recruiting over the next five years. Really exciting study and I'm, I'm really proud to be involved in it. So I hope I've shown you that we've got novel approaches undergoing away in the, in the curative setting, both targeted treatments from the stage four setting moving into the stage three, but also the possibility of using some drugs in combination with radiotherapy to both improve local control and hopefully uh, survival. They are challenging uh, studies and how we design them, what the endpoints should be and how we get patients, recruit patients to these studies, but I think they're well worth it because they can lead to improvements in long-term outcomes. And so lastly, my last polling question is, given all you've heard over the last hour, as I start my discussion with Tom, what do you think the primary endpoints for these stage three studies should be? Should it be progression-free survival, overall survival, disease-free survival, response? And I'm afraid I didn't include major pathological response. Maybe I should have included complete pathological response as an option. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. Thank you, Ali. I'm just going to give a couple of minutes or so just for those, those results to come through. Um, we've actually had two or three questions asking the same, the same thing, um, which is, um, should EGFR mutation patients in the Pacific setting get Devalumab? You touched upon that a little bit, and we recognise the, the patient groups that are in there. And a couple of people have mentioned the, the toxicity they've noticed with um, IO switching to Aussie in, in patients that, that progress. Um, what would you do uh, if funding wasn't an issue? Yeah, I, I think that's very difficult. You know, the progression-free survival suggests a potential uh, improvement, although with big confidence intervals, no difference. I think what, what does worry me is the potential toxicity of giving ozomotinib after devalumab and the potential risk of ozomotinib. So I have used it in the EGFR mutant setting, but I think it is far more of a discussion about the potential benefits. And uh, I'm, I'm probably leaning slightly away from giving it in that setting, um, but you do wonder whether devalumab should have been included in LORA because it, you know, it is considered part of the present standard of care, or, or maybe it should have been investigator's choice and we could have done a subgroup analysis thereafter. I think it's an interesting question. I, I don't think we know. Thank you very much. Just going to go a little bit onto the poll. So the first poll question you asked was, do we think we should be doing molecular profiling for all our non-small cell patients, regardless of stage? Every single person thinks we should. That's pretty good, isn't it? 100%. And, yeah, I, and I, yeah. I, I agree with that. Ali, are you like that? Do you get any pushback with your, um, in your trust? Or do you have to argue to get molecular profiling done unless they're stage four? Or can you sneak yeah. under the radar? Yeah, no. So we're moving towards stage three getting done. Uh, but at the moment, I would say stage one and stage two do not routinely get done. Thank you. And then your last question, which is what do we think should be the primary endpoint of stage three studies? Um, hopefully you guys can see the answer. The great majority of people feel it should be OS with disease-free survival and progression-free survival being uh, coming up quite short after that. Um, we, lo we love OS. I guess the difficulty with it is it's, it's, it takes more time to get. Um, would you agree, Ali? Are, are you happy with OS? Is that the best one? What, what are the disadvantages if you're designing your own study of relying on OS as an endpoint? Yeah, so so it, it, I think it's the length of time. And, you know, you, you look, it, we go back to the first presentation of the Pacific results, and there was this discussion then about progression-free survival versus overall survival. I think when you're looking in the setting where outcomes are very poor and you're seeing a major improvement in something like um, progression-free survival with something like immunotherapy, that's enough to make me switch. I think it is difficult, particularly when you're looking at a Dura, where we know ozomotinib is really good and can give you really good disease control for two to three years. 
And unfortunately, the data we have at the moment is just stopping around about the time when the patients are stopping treatment. So a lot of, you know, we don't know if they're then going to progress or if we're genuinely curing more patients. The melanoma setting where they use adjuvant TKIs would suggest that actually we might be, you know, and, and I did show that these patients are at very high risk for relapse. So I think uh, I haven't really answered the question. I, I think overall survival is too long for me. Um, but I think we do need to take disease-free survival with a big pinch of salt, particularly when you're using a very active treatment like osimertinib that can give you prolonged disease control by itself. Thank you very much. And just the last one or two things, because we're just one minute over time. Um, and you've been very modest about Concord, but it's been a huge effort for you and your colleagues. I think it's a fantastic study. Um, obviously, we appreciate you called it Concord because you're hoping you might end up in the Concord lounge of Heathrow, but that just hasn't worked out with COVID, how you must suffer. Um, a couple of questions, some very nice comments saying what an eloquent study it is, beautiful study. Um, more than one person asking which centres will be open and when might they be open? So that's, that's exciting. Can you enlighten people, practically speaking, when they might be thinking to get people on the way they might be open uh so newcastle manchester and uch look to be the ones who have been quickest at setting it up and i think we're hoping january okay um and then uh, a last teaser from uh that 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 troublesome character professor popat uh borderline bulky stage three disease what's best this is guess for all of you all of you three new adjuvant io and then surgery pacific or concord so I'll just repeat that because I'm asked all of it, you know, Corinne, uh, Samarine and Alistair. So borderline bulky stage three disease, what's best, new adjuvant IO and surgery, Pacific or Concord? And you can fight among yourselves, what do you reckon? Uh, maybe, uh, Ali, if you go first. Uh, not Concord because Concord's for patients who can't receive that concurrent setting. I'll go for the Pioneer study in Manchester. That Very good, Corinne. That's a good one, Ali. Excellent response. I think I'd like to know actually a lot more about this tumour. There's all sorts of aspects that we know we could take into account in terms of making a, a, a more personalised decision. You know, is it a, a tumour that is, you know, very hypoxic, you know, on, on CT or PET-CT? Do we have uh, the impression there's areas of hypoxia, which then, uh, you know, would uh, make us more convinced that surgery is the right thing to do as opposed to uh, radiotherapy. Um, can we look at CTDNA? You know, there's all sorts of things like that. that I think in the future, we need to look at to personalise our treatments more. Anyway, I'm not answering the question. <laughs> not really. Um, and uh, something? So as we're so poor in the UK, uh, for giving concurrent chemo radiotherapy, I think we ought to advocate that far more than any other treatment since it's shown the best overall survival so far with anything that we've done. So, um, you know, I, I would push the concurrent chemo uh, radiotherapy bandwagon much more. And if it's truly, truly unencompassable um, um, and, you know, by an experienced clinical oncologist who said it's not doable, then you should go for preoperative, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, pre-treatment chemo IO and see how you go. But keep it personalized. So evaluate your patient. Don't just assume this is advanced disease and never um, uh, locally treatable. So please keep doing your evaluations. Make sure you're seeing the performance status of the patient. Make sure they're not declining as you're giving them immunotherapy because it does come on a little bandwagon. So if you're getting a response, represent them to your clinical oncologist colleague to make sure they're not 
able to consolidate radiotherapy and then maybe take it back to the MDT for surgical resection because we're on a completely different path now. So we need to keep challenging our MDTs. <laughs> I mean, thank you very much. Uh, I think that brings us to a close. Um, thank you to my three excellent panellists. Um, thank you to uh, Gina and Dawn for coordinating all of BTOG's activities. Um, and of course, to our sponsor, Amgen, um, and uh, also to our working behind the scenes, uh, Richard from First Sight Media, who is coordinating all of this. Uh, look after the website for more exciting webinars to come along. Uh, the next one is in uh, January the 18th in 2021, um, and that's gonna be on molecular subtypes, beyond EGFR, ALK and ROS, so really the kind of cutting edge of the new stuff. So we very much look forward to uh, seeing you there, hopefully with some of us having had some vaccines between now and then. Um, so I'll call it to a, to a close and we wish you a happy Christmas uh, and a nice new year as well. Let's hope it's better than 2020. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.